Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome one and all. Welcome back to Be Real Guys, your critically reappraising movie podcast. I am Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. With a good guest. Uh, yes. Uh, well, today we have Justin Demolition Man Taylor on the program, <laughs> uh, which kind of gives away one of the movies we'll be doing. But if yep. you've clicked on it on iTunes, you already know what movies we're going to do because you looked at it and you said, oh, I've seen a couple of those. <laughs> and now you're skipping around or you're thinking about skipping around to the ones you've seen. Yeah. And it's like, just stop talking about intro stuff and just get to the interview, Mark Marin. Yep. Um, so yeah, we have Justin Taylor, author most recently of the short story collection Flings yeah. on the program today. And Justin's actually your new neighbor there. He moved from being my neighbor to being your neighbor, yep. Chance. That's right. Fellow Portland resident, Justin Taylor. is very kind to, to invite me over to his apartment. We had some uh, cheap Mexican food and uh, some IPAs and... And watch Demolition Man for uh, the genre that we're about to, to describe here. Yeah. Let me just, just sort of like paint the paint like a scene for me, just for my benefit. Sure. Of like the circumstance, like what did, what, what did the room look like? You know, was Amanda in the background? Like, or were you and JT just like <laughs> focused in? Uh, well, if JT doesn't Amanda mind. is his wife, for those of you who don't right. know Justin Taylor. Um, Amanda... I saw her at the very beginning, and she was out going out to a show that evening. Um, it seemed like for an act she was excited about seeing Carly Rae Jespin, but maybe was just to avoid being anywhere near a demolition man and an hour long discussion thereafter. Let's let's we'll get into it. So yes, uh, this week's theme included demolition man, and it was uh, fighting crime with time. Do you want to introduce first Noah, or do you want me to? I would absolutely love to go first. Okay, go for it. I tell you what I like about time travel movies. No matter how you slice them, they don't ever make any goddamn sense. The science explained by wormholes, Sylvester Stallone-sized popsicles, or even a random metal ball with wires coming out of it that a bunch of Asian mafia dudes try to throw you into, it doesn't add up. So that's why the best installments of this dead horse genre are the ones that are secretly other genres of movies with a time travel bow on top. Today, Chance and I have taken on crime movies with a time travel bent. The films Demolition Man, Looper, and Deja Vu. And the reason these films are so exciting in the critical sense is that the crime genre is fueling the drama of the movie. The time travel is merely a device that enables the worst desires of the characters. Whereas Terminator, 12 Monkeys, or even the indie darling Primer hinge the narrative on time travel itself and the ramifications thereof, the nonsense science behind it and the logical disconnect of alternate timelines distracts from the drama unfolding. But throw a good cop versus bad guy in there, or a Kansas City mafia run by a mutant cartel, this is the way to avoid confronting the suspension of disbelief impasse. These films, if successful, use the time travel as any other crime narrative device, like a mistaken identity a la Usual Suspects, uh, an abrupt zoom-out a la Matchstick Men, or the dreaded It Was All a Dream a la Vanilla Sky. And like good crime movies, if these films are successful, it's due to creating a code of ethics by which the viewer can establish who is good and who is bad. And by that ethical code, the good and the bad does battle, and in these films, quite literally. And because the time travel element allows us to move into the future in a seamless fashion, these films should, if successful, say a bit about what the viewer values in their own moral code. What's right? What's wrong? At what cost does the former overtake the latter? By those standards, I will offer my reviews. As usual, Noah's done a great job of setting up the genre, so I will head down my weird little side road. Uh, from Back to the Future onward, 
pretty much any good movie about time manipulation is going to admit it's not as simple as ending up in the past or future and tweaking things for the better. We know through fading photographs all the way to violently intertwining fates that whatever transpires is going to impact the traveler itself, probably the world they left. My lingering question with the movies we watched for this episode is what does ending up in a new time around both strangers and maybe a different version of yourself do to the value of human life? When the protagonists of Deja Vu and Looper realize they can save people they love by returning to the past, is the audience not hit with the feeling that the people on these new planes, or perhaps the people in the old ones, are just figments, not people? I think that malleability and gradual feeling of an endless spectrum developing is what makes these stories so interesting, but also a little depressing. It turns what's depicted in the movies into mere incidents that seem uninformed by what might have happened before and unsafe from future meddling. What is a life if it exists infinite times on infinite timelines? And even in a movie like Demolition Man, which uses a narrative time travel device without any actual object transference, the new world seems too unreal, so much as to be expendable. Or maybe that was the old world. Honestly, those two guys just want to blow things up. So that's where my emotions are with this genre. But critically, I think it's imperative that these movies do address some sort of butterfly effect. This is not a kid in King Arthur's court. You can't just go around playing without any consequences. It's a tall task, but a great time travel movie explains the unexplainable and then blasts out of the techno babble to put on an actual action movie. Let's get into it. That was very good, Chance. Thank you. We are starting with Demolition Man. Um, God damn it, we are. Yeah, 1993's Demolition Man, directed by Marco Brambia and starring Sylvester Stallone and a cat-eye contact-wearing Wesley Snipes. Uh, Sly is a part of a beret-wearing unit of the uh, LAPD, and Simon Phoenix is this sort of like comic book cartoony arch criminal that he's trying to hunt down who's like kidnapped a busload of people who went through the wrong neighborhood he essentially frames sly for their murder they are both sentenced to sort of the most severe rehabilitating punishment of the day which is to be frozen in cryogen for or something like cryogen for how long is it 70 years no, 40 well, he's, years. He's charged for 40 years, but then they wake him up in uh, less than that. And then, they, then they're thawed out, and uh, they're way out of water in a new world. And this new world is, like, ultra, like, utopian, and people don't curse, and, like... What do you want to say before we, uh, before we dive in with Justin? What... And I've seen this movie once before. Okay. Um, what I noticed this time seeing it was just how like flimsy the reason Sylvester Stallone goes to this rehabilitational jail is. Oh, like yeah. the opening scene just like doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Like he goes to rescue these hostages and then has an altercation with Wesley Snipes, who's put them in a like who's taken the hostages, mind you. <laughs> And he's rigged the whole thing with explosives, Wesley Snipes. And then Sylvester Stallone, like, attacks him a little while. And then Wesley Snipes sets the building ablaze. And the whole thing explodes. And they get there. They, like, arrest Wesley Snipes. But Wesley Snipes is like, ha ha, the hostages were in the building. And then I blew it up. It's your fault. And then Sylvester Stallone's like, what? And he's like, yeah, you said, like, do it, guy. Do it. Who cares? <laughs> And that was enough of, like, a reason to send him to jail for 40 years? Yeah, they get equal sentences, don't they? Yes. <laughs> a mass murderer and a cop who might have made a few mistakes in combating a mass murderer were sentenced to equal ice block times. Well, I don't think what he did was actually, like, legally wrong. Like, he tried to stop crime and then couldn't. Like, there's no crime there. <laughs> Oh, man. Like, Wesley Snipes set off the bomb. Yeah, well, I think you're getting at one of the one of the really interesting things about Demolition Man that it just, like, goes full throttle past is, I mean, it's very concerned with how different it imagines 2032 to be, but it also imagines 1996 to just be a burning hellscape full of, like, rogue cops 
who <laughs> are put in jail for like not being able to thwart cat-eyed martial artists. Like it's right. crazy. Right. The world, yeah, the world where you start is pretty weird. Yeah. Enough that like when you get to the future, it like doesn't really seem that bad. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, I think the movie does have a lot of fun with like it knows that it's like a one joke movie. It's like, like how many ideas for the way things are going to be in 40 years can we come up with? Right. Right. And then like that's kind of ultimately like the films. I mean, they have and as Justin will talk about, they have like a pretty uh, good idea of like what the future would look like in certain ways. They throw a lot of stuff at the wall and some of it sticks for sure. But, like, I feel like they also, you know, threw a lot of characters at the wall and not all of them stuck. At the end of a century, ravaged by violence, a society of perfect order will arise. Let's get into my conversation with Justin Taylor. We're closer to the year in which the movie set than the movie in, w- in the year in which it came out. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Really it, makes you think. It really makes you think. But I think a thing like that, especially if you're watching it when you're very when you're very young, like because the movie's going for a certain kind of self awareness, like about the '90s. It's a '90s movie that's making fun of the '90s, you know, through this pseudo meta gesture of of being actually set in the future, right? Um, and that just seemed like such an avant garde, like cool idea. And I don't know that you could have anticipated at at that time, at that age, that that the gesture itself would become dated in addition to like all the ways in which it believed itself to be contemporary is maybe the most nineties thing about it, that it's like a fantasy about getting away from like the urban troubles of the nineties. Like it's set like what, like two years after the LA riots. And it's like LA specifically that's become this, uh, I mean, dystopia or utopia, depending how you look at it, like Mm -hmm. the rest of the world We've no idea, but the, it's become, yeah, the rest of the world is never mentioned. We don't no, know what's yeah. happened with the rest of the it's world. It's just this like Southern California corridor that's become San yeah. Angeles. I think that I think that the weird, like implicit commentary on, yeah, like like '90s ideas about crime and urban violence. Uh, I think that's the second most '90s thing about it. Okay, I mean, you definitely get in the especially in that opening scene. Um, like a lot of like white centrist paranoid fantasies about like the rotten urban core, you know, like this, like the super predators and yeah. you know, all this. you do see all that. But I actually think the most nineties thing about it is that the D de- is that deeper fear that the movie expresses that what comes after that urban decay is, actually a kind of sanitized like pseudo utopianism mm-hmm. uh where every problem is so taken care of i and i think i think that, that we become unequipped to like live it expresses this like legit horror of or not legit it expresses like an illegitimate horror of some <laughs> legitimate <laughs> problems that 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 major cities had in the 90s right but the fantasy is in the belief that the reaction is going to be not only so extreme in the other way, but also that it will actually be perfect. Yeah. Like it's a movie that anticipates essentially like a kind of super Bloomberg nanny state, Mm. but fails to imagine like all the other things that would ultimately just like unravel and, and undermine that. Yeah. You know, what's your favorite non snipe Stallone? Who's your favorite side character in this movie? Do you have one? Well, you know, when I was a kid, it was Dennis Leary. I mean, mm-hmm. he was just, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. He was just such a, he just seemed so cool and like such a countercultural figure. And in the time that this came out, uh, you know, he was all over MTV and you sort of couldn't tell the difference between him and his like ranty, like indie rock, whatever it was, mode. And like, uh, you know, I was trying to think of other bands that were on MTV at that time, like Nirvana, Metallica, Tool, I mean, Pavement, like a lot of other bands that really had nothing to do with each other. And I think this is I think this is something that I think about a lot when I think about the nineties. Um that there was all this heterogeneous stuff that 
was presented as a kind of monoculture. Mm-hmm. And so there was kind of two lies going on. The first lie was that it was this anti-corporate thing when in reality it was it was kind of the rise of mega corporations learning how to market youth culture in an industrial way. And so as children, we all got tricked by that. But the, but the other part of it was that like, they just sort of insisted it was all the same when it really wasn't. Uh, I mean, I always think the paradigmatic examples like, you know, Green Day, Pavement and Fish were all like MTV buzz bands in the same buzz bin when they used to have the buzz bin. I have a lot of respect for that whole plot line in this movie mm-hmm. because it, 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 it makes like a really interesting really interesting it makes a really obvious point uh in a really interesting and quintessentially 90s way uh-huh. which is that there's the, you know that dennis leary leads this faction of essentially gutter punks um yeah. you know they're i mean they're like the only they live in the sewer and they're and they're kind of like half a starving third world oppressed group and they're kind of half like a bunch of anarchists they just drink all the time and they rob like the food truck and like they keep talking about how they're starving to death. It seemed pretty okay. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, to me, like that very much epitomizes and uh, like a certain kind of '90s dropout culture, um, and and in its activist mode, like definitely anticipates like the black bloc and you know and like the anarchists who like led the WTO protests and. Uh, and so it's it's nice to see those people represented um, <laughs> in such a crazy uh, comic book world because yeah. they do kind of play a good like they save the movie from being too dumb just from being Snipes Stallone. Sure, you know, like they're constantly just entering the fray and and screwing things up. But anyway, I guess what I was trying to say was that like that was always the sort of image of that of him and of that subplot that I had in my mind and rewatching it now I was really shocked by how actually like conservative uh and and essentially like misogynist Dennis Leary's message is like you said this best all the things that he wants when he lists all the things he wants his idea of overthrowing this nanny state and having freedom is like is like basically the freedom to like eat meat watch porn like jerk off a bunch (laughs) yeah um it's it's a very like yeah you won't let me have my beer commercial. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He what he yeah, he basically like, he like wants to go to a college football game like in Ohio. Like that's what he, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like, he doesn't really want to liberate the earth. And so then we watch these MTV clips after I pulled up some of those those leery nineties thing. And it's all the same stuff. Yeah. He attacks Don Henley for being an environmentalist. He attacks Sting for whatever the problem for was sting balding, was, I think for balding. <laughs> yeah. And everything on his hit sheet is like, he's against environmentalism. He's against vegetarianism. Hair slicked back. He's got that cadence. Yeah. He's talking so fast. Like you just always want to talk as fast as him. Sure. So I would say that that was the original favorite on, on the review. I think, I think, uh, I think Sandra Bullock really steals the movie. She, um, I mean, she really admirably commits to this sort of like wide-eyed dumb shtick and she really doesn't let it go commits is a good word yeah she she stays true to that character and it would i mean it's got to be a little bit annoying to stay true to that character if you're like sandy bullock on set and everyone else sandy we're calling her sandy now i think we can (laughs) okay it's 2016 Yeah. yeah that's true um yeah, that doesn't seem like it was that fun what she got to do, but she really was a pro when it came to like to doing it mm-hmm. at like not speaking Sly's language and well, she has getting her... stun gun by Sly and not getting to be in the climax. Of the <laughs> yeah, movie. and then having to thank him for knocking. Yeah, out. she has all her fun in the first like third of that movie, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like from from the time after that opening set piece ends, it's like her movie for twenty minutes, and then that's true. That scene where he can't figure out how to use the bathroom and then he just curses at the curse machine until he has enough tickets to go wipe his ass. Yeah. Like that is actually the power transfer scene in that movie where it stops being her movie. Right. Uh, like that scene starts out with her at the center and then they like, there's literally like, where's John Spartan? And then he walks in, you know, it's, it's like watching the inauguration of the president. <laughs> <laughs> Celebrate the peaceful transfer of power. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Would 
I'm kind of torn about this. Like one of the ducking back to the, to the to the Leary monologue. I feel like this movie has this like obvious opportunity to make some real like comments on like race and class and urbanization and when like mm-hmm. and you're kind of like waiting for the underground faction to like state their belief system about like why they're going to rebel and you i i guess i thought that that was going to be part of it like we've been driven underground by this like totalitarian uh like force that wears this nice hippie face but when he comes out with that monologue which like relates to none of those things right um you kind of realize that like this movie is either like ill-equipped or not interested like it's not going to make any of those comments which like in some ways i think like makes it like a little dumb but do you think it would have been like much more irritating if it had set out to do something allegorically dystopian does that make sense yeah no that makes sense would that have been more irritating it definitely would have been more irritating yeah i mean but this is kind of what i mean about like about when things age in a certain way and you start to see the way like there's a way in which this movie always knew it was a period piece and it has a very explicit kind of commentary on its own time. Mm-hmm. But what you're what you're talking about now, I think, is really where you hit the thing that it doesn't know about itself. Yeah. Um, this movie doesn't know that there is both an implicit and to a sophisticated viewer, a rather explicit racial dimension to the story it's telling. That Wesley Snipes is, you know, characterized as this kind of, super predator um, who wears kind of like crazy outlandish outfits that seem to me more modeled on like, like even in the mid nineties, this is kind of a retro look. Like he looks like, like a, like an early and living color backup dancer or maybe like a fresh Prince of Bel Air, you know, like one of Will's friends or something. I mean, the outfits he's just wearing are, are, are totally insane. So he's playing this, this already at its own moment kind of outdated uh, caricature of a kind of racist fantasy, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, But the movie definitely doesn't know that. Right. It's, you know, the suggestion is that the law and the violation of the law are, are actually deeply interconnected and that, and that they, and they kind of need each other. Um, that's an interesting point. Is it's almost surprising to me this movie is so comic booky that at no point did Wesley Snipes deliver the like we're not so very different you and I speech mm-hmm. because like they are these two like relics of this past society that seem to have like brought their violence but also brought their virtues to this future world. Like they could have easily had that like classic mm-hmm. like villain hero conversation in this in this new world. No, I think that's a great point. Well, the only reason they don't is because Snipes is not jo- Simon. Simon Phoenix doesn't because wanna... he has no lines <laughs> that like have any bearing on the movie. <laughs> well, yeah, because he only ever talks to himself <laughs> while like getting in and out of cars. But Simon Phoenix isn't interested in converting John Spartan to anything. Right. Uh, he's this kind of force of pure malevolence, and yeah. it, and it never. Yeah, it, there's that moment where like, you know, like the Joker like tries to tempt Batman into like you know, exercising his right, power right. in a kind of Nietzschean way. Like that doesn't occur to him because he doesn't want to do anything other than kill John Spartan. Yeah. Um, which is kind of beautiful. It, I mean, it goes back to the innocence that you were yeah. talking about. Like just gleeful malevolence. Mm-hmm. Like when he breaks into that museum, he's so most happy. of what he wants to do is just touch guns. Yeah. Like he, at one point he's... <laughs> just like rubbing like the shaft of that cannon mm-hmm. at one point. And he's just like the idea of just the idea of violence to be perpetrated without even perpetrating it is like enough for him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even, I mean, as evil as he is, the one, the one place where him and, and Spartan really do see eye to eye is they both make these strong, uh, claims on, on behalf of like a physicality of physical culture. Um, sure. You know, yeah, Simon Phoenix is like favorite thing. Like he just, he wants to hold the gun. He wants to touch the gun. He wants to blow the thing up. He wants to murder the person. Yeah. And it's this deeply destructive force. Like S- S- John Spartan wants all the same things only in a positive 
way i mean he also likes blowing up buildings uh and he catches bad guys but like what he really wants to do is like yeah he wants to grab a bad guy by the neck he wants to like shake him up he wants to you know sweat blood like i I don't think it's coincidental or rather i do think it's coincidental but it's it's a lucky coincidence like all the disagreements john spartan has with people around him and, and almost all the ways that he fails to connect with his fellow cops and citizens in the future are all rooted in these same issues of of physicality he's a criminal the likes of which you have never seen in a bad time he was the worst I'm going to love running this place. Can we can we talk for a minute about all the all the ways in which this film was was prescient? For as much as it's wrong about a, a lot of things, it's really right. That's true. Um, well, for one, you have the the joke that seemed like a timely early '90s jab about Schwarzenegger when it maybe Stallone and Schwarzenegger had a polite rivalry, mm-hmm. but about how Arnold became president of the U.S. based on his popularity, which is I don't know. 75% of the way to the truth of something that no one could have foreseen in 1993. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're talking about the design of iPads. Mm-hmm. The first time we see Lydia Huxley, she's driving in her car to work and the car is on auto drive, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, she's looking at a bunch of clunky screens that seem very much like, you know, there's like a GPS one and there's... Yeah like a rear view camera and uh, and then she's got that other one where she's teleconferencing with her boss. The car is driving and that it looks exactly like an iPad. Like there's no holograms. There's none of that. People just, and, and people aren't interested in it at all. They just kind of like clock in when they need to talk. They need to see each other's face. And even I've got to say like the, the one of the, you know, that running gag about how they listen to mini tunes, which are just like old commercials. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think that's all that far off. I mean, it it hasn't manifested exactly in that way. Obviously, we don't sit around, you know, just listening to commercials on the radio. But um, uh, the, you know, the way that everything is 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 these days is so very consciously a kind of exercise in willful nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think the the running thing about the mini tunes anticipates that pretty pretty smartly, and and also like more and more. I mean you can't necessarily always tell the difference between where the advertising stops and the art starts, you know? So, so maybe, so maybe like an NPR of old commercials is not a reality we live in, but like we do live in a place where, you know, in a world where like native advertising uh, is something that you see constantly sponsored blog posts, you know, this, you know, these, so I, I I don't know. So I, I think, I think that falls under, I don't know. Is that fair? Am I am I just like being cranky? No, I think your point is right though. Because also think about Taco Bell. Yes. Taco Bell probably. I mean, it's like it's a it's a joke in the movie about how Taco Bell is bad, and it's funny that it would become mm-hmm. the ubiquitous and only option for like for eating at a restaurant. But Taco Bell said yes to this immediately, which essentially is again like talk about product placement, it is a kind of conversion story. Um, mm-hmm. that, that the narrative about Taco Bell is that it's actually way fancier and more resilient. And even though John Spartan himself doesn't really enjoy his meal there, no. in so many ways, Taco Bell is actually so much more interesting than anyone ever thought it could be. Yeah. I mean, that's really the message <laughs> about Taco yeah. Bell. So you can see why they're willing to sign on because because they were canny enough even at that time that like they knew... They knew what their reputation was, right? Uh, as sort of like poverty stoner diarrhea food, and they were like, mm-hmm. "What do you think we can do with that?" <laughs> you know, and and it's and it's that it's that grain of self awareness. You're actually you're really witnessing the beginning of the '90s corporation figuring out how to co opt the kind of irony and cynicism that that was designed to shut them out. Your tone is quasi-facetious, but you do not realize that Taco Bell was the only restaurant to survive the franchise wars. So? So? Now all restaurants are Taco Bell. I would certainly call this movie bad good. I'm curious if you would mount a case that it is good good. Or, is or, good, good. or would you say, like I think most people would, that this is clearly not a good movie, but it is extremely watchable? 
Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's right. I would okay. I would not make a case for it as a good, good movie. Okay. Um, but I, th- I think bad good is right. And I, I think the things about it that are good are very good. Every, most people appear to be having the time of their lives. That's another, that is another thing. Like, all the characters seem like they're having a lot of fun. Yes. I mean, the actors seem like they're having fun. Yeah. Well, Justin, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Hey, my pleasure. How was the fiendish Simon Phoenix apprehended back in the 20th? In the end, it took just one man. John Spartan. You mean the demolition man? I'm sorry to disagree with you and JT, uh, but I'm going to have to go bad, bad on this one. Okay. I'm, I'm not mad at you for that. It's just like if it were like if it had had the same tone as it had and like the plot made like just a hair more sense. Mm-hmm. Like I think I would be willing to like get on board. There's just so many like gaping and obvious plot holes and Wesley Snipes is like just so bad. <laughs> He's like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Batman and Robin bad. I mean, and it's sort of his fault, but it's like also... But, but it kind of isn't, though, because you talked about it with Justin, the idea that he spends most of the movie delivering lines to, like, guns. <laughs> yes, he's like, oh, I love guns. Like, I love you guns. Like, that's... Well, you're not getting anything out of his character. But at the same time, like, one could deliver even, like, the most ridiculous of lines with, like, a bit more nuance. At this point... You're like you're right in the midst of Hollywood, like legitimately attempting to make Wesley Snipes a box office star, and to an extent, right. he kind of is. But do you think his acting career ultimately fails because people will only cast him in movies where he gets to kick people in the head, or does he only want to be in movies where he gets to kick people in the head? Interesting. I mean, he I've seen him do a little bit more, like you know, Murder at Sixteen Hundred, which we watched. Like they right. they make him do a little bit more. He's playing like a Denzel character, right? Um, and he has most of the swagger to do that. Yeah, I'm so it's it's tough to say if it was the uh, the egg of him just wanting to do dumb movies, or like the chicken of him like getting into major tax problems with the U.S. government. And, <laughs> You know, spending an extended vacation in some sort of white-collar penitentiary. Uh But it was funny. Watching Sandra Bullock explain to Sylvester Stallone, like, the things that, you know, how the world works, like, was so funny in how close it was to how Brie Larson explains how the world works to her (laughs) five-year-old child raised in captivity in room. Thank you uh, to Justin Taylor for the for the time and generosity, sir, and for purchasing this movie on DVD uh, so we could watch it. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> the guy who directed that movie like really didn't do anything ever again. Yeah, he made like if you go to his Wikipedia page, it refers to Marco Brambilla first as in like an art installationist, not a film director. This was not like his life's Weird. work. Right, this is the first movie he ever directed, and then he directed like a series of like arty movies. Two, yeah, two, and then like a bunch of short films. Yeah, and the Kanye West Power video. Ooh, I mean, good for that guy. Get me the director of Demolition Man. <laughs> that Kanye would say that though. You think he hasn't oh, tweeted man. that at three in the morning some night? <laughs> oh no. Uh, where do we go from here, buddy? Deja vu or Looper? I would love to get into Looper. Basically, we start with um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is working again in the future. um, Like 2044. 2044. He works as a guy who, because in the future of then, it's so difficult to hide a human body if you murder them that they've been sending bodies like back in time or people back in time to get murdered in the past Mm -hmm. so that this crime syndicate can keep doing what it's doing or whatever. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is employed as the person who physically just pulls the trigger and kills the person and then collects his money. And then when they decide his contract up is up, they kill him presumably by having him kill his older self. And then he lives out his next, however long until he catches up to the present, which is the future, which is the future future in the terms of this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, uh, yeah. But then one day Joseph Gordon-Levitt's older self, Bruce Willis comes back and 
Joseph Gordon-Levitt keep is kept from killing him. So then the drama unfolds as the two of them, he has to kill his older self in order not to be killed by this crime syndicate, which has been sort of explained to us by seeing someone not kill his, his version of himself before. And this really harrowing scene that we can talk about, I hope. Yeah. Oh my Um, God. Frightening. So you're me in 30 years. Sun's down into your eyes. It's too strange. Your face looks backwards. Do you know what's going to happen? You've done all this already? As me? I don't want to talk about time travel. We both know how this has to go down. So why don't you do what old men do and die? Why don't you just take your little gun out between your legs and do it? Boy. This movie's so much. I forgot. I had seen this when it came out in the theaters. You did? Yeah, I did. And I had completely forgotten it. I I remembered, like, not really liking it. I loved Ryan Johnson's first movie, Brick. Mm -hmm. I didn't mind his second movie, The Brothers Bloom. And I just remembered not liking this one. So I went in, but I couldn't remember specifically why. It's funny. And then I... I was just saying real quick, it's funny you say that because I, like, never had any interest because having seen the trailer, it's just like, oh, Bruce Willis is old Joseph Gordon-Levitt again in contacts and makeup. Like, I have no interest in that movie. I'm on board for this movie in the first, you know, two-thirds of it. I think it's, like, one of the better time travel sci-fi movies of its genre. It's really good at... Especially, I I think the first 20 minutes, especially, like, it's so good at dispersing the information that you need and, like, so, right. all that stuff that, you know, anyone would find so hard to explain if they were reviewing Looper on their podcast. The movie does an excellent job of giving you, like, little and it doesn't, voiceover It bits. doesn't beat you over the head with it, either. Right, a little tech, a little lifestyle, a little, like, situating yourself in this Yeah, like, a of, little bit of, like these like social cues that exist that explain a lot more than me talking about it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's set up one of the more interesting worlds. Um, Absolutely. And I think if it had been like a taut 90 minute sort of action movie where it was literally just Bruce Willis running and Jogo chasing, I think it would have been like one of the better action movies I'd ever seen. Because it's so ambitious, and I think... Oh, it's so ambitious, I think the yeah. writing is good. It never got to a point where I was like, pick a movie, man. Like, it's a little bit too good for me to levy that criticism, but... Oh, sure. You have, like, you have a job adventure, you have an enchanted child, you have past future, you have a manhunt, you have a fugitive hideout. Like, this is, like, four or five movies in right. little under two hours. Right. Yeah. And that's fine, but I, and I, I think it makes for an entertaining watch. Yes. Like I didn't, I was never bored. That, that was what I sort of remembered rewatching it was that like, it's not a boring movie. Like it's an exciting film. Oh, for sure. Um, a beautifully well-made, a beautifully shot film. Yeah. It sets up this interesting world where you realize that the loopers are uh, living self-destructive lives in order to do this crazy, violent, sort of like nihilistic impossible job that they have right but the emotional crux of the movie hangs on you believing that bruce willis really truly feels saved um as he becomes like a 60 year old man or something like that by this relationship that he has right and bruce willis just isn't really capable of pulling that off at least for me so his reasoning to basically set this entire universe ablaze to um save a person he loves doesn't quite work for the big turn. Mm. See, I didn't mind that, like that weird sort of pause and fast forward thing. It does. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was like the most brilliant way to show the fact that like this guy lives another 30 years, he made 30 years worth of like decisions and 30 years worth of like emotional adjustments and stuff like that. Um, I think the device is fine. Yeah, well, I think, see, I don't agree with you about Bruce Willis. Okay. I think the, that's one of the few things, I, not few things, I think a lot of things save this movie, but I think one of the biggest highlights, I think, for me is the cast. Yeah, but the thing it's asking him to do to, like, make the movie work, uh, I don't think he can do. 
The whole thing where it's just like, you don't even understand. Like, she saved me. Like, your life is shit. Like, he can't do that because then the movie... I think this is Bruce Willis, like, bread and butter doing the, oh. I gotta kill somebody, but for a reason. Okay. Like, that's his, that's his, that's his bread and butter. Like, and I think he's perfectly cast. The, the decision to set it in Kansas City is, like, such Amazing. a neat thing because you have, like, it almost... So one of the obvious resonances, as especially as uh, the child becomes involved, is like Superman. You kind of feel like you're in this like weird um, cornfield, like lots of like long linear shots where like kind of like magic is hiding in this unassuming place, right next to this sort of like half real important, but also like Jogo kind of says it's like a lame city. Um, that like duality between like urban and country was really cool. And Johnson has yeah. a lot of fun with his camera in those places too. Yeah, no, I think the, the setting is one of the best choices uh, of the movie. Yeah. Um, and it also just like has this great, I mean, I think Ryan Johnson's so good at like creating noir feel Yeah. and it's got such a great like blade runner noir thing to it of just like these guys like going to the same nightclub every night and like, living like there's no tomorrow because sooner than most there like won't be. Yeah. And and a good a good follow up on that I think is it, it does a good job of not burden of all the things that the movie does burden itself with. It does not burden itself with like trying to explain the entire world to you. It's just trying to explain like a very specific subculture, like one right. weird crazy profession that like lives a certain way even as everything else sort of like seems to be falling apart around it my question is this and this is one of the things i want to talk about comparing demolition man and um looper is the idea of what like do you think it is a mistake or do you think it works that each of these movies refuses to acknowledge a world outside of the city in which they are set hmm because that's like my question for any sort of dystopian or time travel or going to the future sci-fi movies is like how much of the world do, how much of the world do we understand and does it use it for the betterment of the narrative or is it just like laziness I think I'll keep it brief I think that this one it's to its benefit because it, it picks a world, but it, you know, there are two worlds within that world, the rural and the urban. I think demolition man, that was one of the things that I found consistently weird because like, if you're trying to make us believe that there was a massive cultural shift on the level of like, and a literal earthquake. Yeah. On the, on the level of habits and language, it's very weird to be like, Oh, well that only happened across like southern california and like nowhere else right and southern california became its own like entity under this weird deity thing yeah that seems like something that should happen to a country or world right (laughs) like you're gonna tell me that like what i liked about oh keep going i was like no i'm just gonna say like you're gonna tell me that in like san like san francisco and reno they just like look at san angeles as like a weird cult and like they're perfectly normal it's like a weird thing well, that's the thing, too, is I had no, like, context to understand, like, is this just this one region? Does the whole country feel this way? Does the whole world feel this way? Whereas in Looper, I thought Kansas City was so beautifully chosen as a place that, like, is a big enough city that you don't really need to think about anything outside of it if you're in it. Mm-hmm. And is small enough to just feel like these guys, no matter how high in the totem pole they are, they're still kind of pathetic. Yeah, totally. Like even Jeff Daniels as like the crime kingpin or like the kingpin of Kansas City at that time is not cool. And that's what I think he does really well. Ryan Johnson is like in Brick. He had the kingpin who's this guy with this like club foot living in his mom's uh, basement. Mm hmm. Which is such an interesting choice. He's just so great at like twisting these noir tropes and creating these really funny, almost like Tarantino-esque, you know, variations on a theme. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think you can add to that the the telekinesis with the quarters where everyone thinks that's kind of lame or that you have the montage with the nightclub that seems, that's kind of ironic because it seems like that's yeah. the moment to show 
how like luxurious their lifestyle is but it just seems like a bunch of guys with ponytails that's really kind of unattractive can we talk about the scene with the body parts yeah a scene which to my mind is does not explained unless i'm missing something what do you mean it's not explained is it is paul dano being dismembered is that why that's happening right right oh okay all right. I guess I guess it was explained they, and I just didn't want to. No, 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 because when he shows up at the door and he shoots him, you can see in the background that they're like... Oh, they're chopping him up. That scene fucked me up. And I don't know that I've seen another scene in recent memory that like fucked with me like that bad. And just so imaginative, too. Right. And well, that's what it's so... It's so good because he's like invented his own nightmare that seems like it could be your own. Yes. And... And, and yeah, not only and something that's, that's visually terrifying if you don't understand in the moment what's going on, like as it was with me, but something that lines up with like a really important mechanical aspect of like the time travel rules. But that's the thing, too, is this this movie is such a grad level course in like how to plot a film well. Mm hmm. Like it has so many callbacks to things that were earlier in the movie for other important reasons. Yeah. And that's why the world building like works so well is because they use things several times. So they seem important. Yeah. You know, like the whole thing with the motorcycle, like not starting, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so, it's so fascinating. Or the sexy ribbit. One of my, the the frog booty call. I loved that. Frog booty call. Loved it. It was such a good scene. Um, yeah, it was. What if we can we double back? Because I feel like you, oh, based in, in your tone, there there are some uh, maybe get to a few more things you don't like about this movie. I think one of its its failings is that after the first thirty minutes, um, I didn't necessarily want it to pick a movie, but I like kind of wanted to watch a movie, and mm. I feel like sometimes the connectivity or the desire for connectivity between the objects you were talking about and the conversations and the people and who they're going to end up becoming was so great and so interwoven that yeah. um that like the conversations like could just not like just couldn't be like the things that people right. were saying to each other it just like stopped being like any kind of organic world because everything like meant something. And did that frustrate you at all at a certain point? What frustrated me was that the movie, like, and not to sound so like, you know, uh, pedestrian about it, but the movie needed like a car chase scene, you know, it needed a time where there's like no more cute, quippy dialogue. Mm -hmm. Like we need, like, if this is going to be like an action movie, which I would call noir an action movie genre, it needs an action sequence. What you needed is more between Jogo and uh, and Bruce. Yeah, you did for sure. You needed them like chasing each other in some cars or some sort of something to let us know that the movie had like we're gonna do our thing now. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, there's a weird part of me. It's interesting that you brought up the like if it were ninety minutes, it would be great. There's also a part of me that thinks it would work better if it were three hours. Like, I mean, obviously right. that presents its own difficulty, but I feel like going for a certain tautness, like while trying to put so much in, puts it in an awkward position of things being right. Yeah, it's just such a. It's almost like a television season arc. That's true that like I, I think you're right i think it would almost have been better as like a mini series or just a season of television about these guys yeah it's probably true um on the whole though what would you say i'm gonna have to give it a um i'm gonna let it squeak by with a good good i would too i, I don't think it's a great movie i think there are th- parts about it that are annoying to a viewer but i think if you are a viewer of discerning like sci-fi taste with a little bit of a brain to it that doesn't think so much about the science as it does the characters then i think you will be entertained for sure yeah i would agree i would say good good too um and i think I just love the way that it brought me into the world i was instantly sort of like proven wrong in my whole like Joseph Gordon-Levitt in makeup and becoming old Bruce Willis? Come on. Like, it does, for that 
that part to work like it has such a good idea of how to bring you into the world like no questions asked yeah um, and by that point i think you're sitting on the couch for like um an exciting if flawed latter half so yeah, yeah i would watch it too if you haven't seen it to deja vu to deja vu um chance this is like one of your favorite all-time movies so why don't you synopsize <laughs> That's misrepresenting it a little bit, but any you, de- no, you talk about this movie endlessly, and I had never seen it up until this podcast uh, week. So well, I finally get all the references you were making. I think I like to talk about it because I. So I also have not seen this movie in like eight years. Um, and it's 10 years old. Um, so <laughs> I must have watched it a lot of times between 2006 and 2009. Um, I think I knew how ridiculous it was, and that's why it was so fun to pretend that it was like this really important movie, um, which it is not. But oh, certainly not. It comes in this like great string of <sighs> Denzel, Denzel Washington not being believed by the people that pay him. Exactly, it Denzel like coasting on star power before he before like he's forcing it with his star power like this is like in the kind of like the out of time i'm beta out of time yeah like right before american gangster like he still has like that movie star thing where you like put it on a screen and like that is definitely enough to like stick some parts around it in a story um well, that's, although although that's, we'll, uh, we'll get into if that's true, actually. I'm just talking about how studios uh, would have thought of it. Um, but Deja Vu. Yeah. Set in, uh, set in New Orleans. Post-Katrina. A terrorist blows up a ferry full of Navy men and their families. And ATF agent Denzel Washington, Doug Carlin, is, is sent to investigate it's immediately clear that he's super smart way better than all these other bozos like (laughs) bruce greenwood and that fat guy um oh fat kilmer (laughs) it's not who i was talking about but yeah fat kilmer uh so what quickly becomes clear as denzel starts investigating is that fbi agent fat val kilmer can offer him the ability to (sighs) observe I almost don't even want to get it want to get into like their excuses can offer him the ability to travel through time and stop the crime all centered around this. Well, you don't know that he can travel through time at the beginning. You only know that he can see back four hours or four days and six hours. I almost don't even want to give any credence to that, <laughs> but like we'll get into it. But anyway, the whole thing revolves around this separate crime because the guy who committed the bombing needed to steal a car from Paula Patton, who he murdered in the process. They think if they can solve Paula Patton's murder, that they can solve the larger terrorist attack. What's deeply troubling about this movie too, is like that is when they stop the person, you know, who's going to commit this crime, who already committed this crime, the movie should end. Mm -hmm. And, No other actor, I think, other than Denzel Washington can literally let a movie play out for another 35 minutes just because he, like, kind of wants to have sex with Paula Patton. Like, that's really the only reason he goes back. Yeah. You arrive at a place you've never been. But it feels familiar. But it feels familiar. You look into the face of a stranger. And you feel like you've known her all your life. Have we met? Denzel, okay, he is not what I would call good in this movie, though. He is just a movie... I mean, he's Denzel playing a, like a good cop. <laughs> yes, he's a movie star with a lot of charm who is in a movie where he just responds to people telling him the ways that like that this is going either my daughter was this so he responds to that or you can travel through time this way and then he responds to that or like wormholes don't do this and he's like don't speak english um it's not a great performance but it's like a classic like get your money make a 60 million dollar movie where like you're just um either a good-hearted man or like frustrated by what people are telling you 
Yeah, this is not all. It's just not a very good script. Mm-hmm. I think that the premise is pretty flimsy. Um, and I think like the the thing about this movie that sort of frustrates me is the fact that you know unlike Demolition Man, it takes itself very seriously. Oh yeah, like it thinks it has something to say about post Katrina rhetoric. In that the movie is dedicated to the brave people who like overcame Katrina, right? Which is a completely, in my opinion, unearned title card. Sure. Um, and then like saying something about you know our national security and that we should give the government like more control over like what they can see of our private lives. You're, you're breaking the thing open here. I don't even know which one to address first, but let's do surveillance. It's such a 2006 movie in its like apolitical pre NSA scandal, like idea, the idea that like members of several federal agencies would be gathering around with surveillance satellite technology, or that's what they say introduce it is to begin with, that allows you to look through people's walls into their lives, into their showers. And that's like, just like something to be laughed at and used to solve a crime is crazy. Right. No one yeah. in this movie is like, should we be doing this? Which, if you were going to do this movie in 2016, someone would definitely do that to the point where they would not write the movie. Right. I mean, Denzel has his moment where he's like, can she see us? And that's really his only moral question is that, like, can she see that we're, like, looking at her in the shower? Not that we're looking at her in the shower, but can she see it? Yeah. Uh, and then, like, the worst part about it was then they cut to the the only, like, other black person in the room. That woman, they're like, you don't have to stare at her or whatever she says. Yeah, not great. Well, and also, like, that's a major point of the movie. Denzel falls in love with Paula Patton by the right. government spying on her in her room as she's constantly walking around without a top on. Like, right. And she's like this weird, like male fantasy of a woman where she's like talking to her bird about singing love songs. She doesn't appear to have a job. Like she has nope. a boyfriend who's not good enough for well, her. Well, she's the hostess of that restaurant. But anyway, like it's it's creepy. Oh, definitely. But it's not as creepy as Jesus like stealing her car and then like cutting off her fingers. <laughs> Jim Caviezel is. Uh... A real weirdo in this movie. Right. And also not. Like, that's my, that's another issue I have with this movie. And talking about, like, all good crime movies, like, need to give you a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Is that Jim Caviezel, like, isn't even a character in this. No. He's basically, like, I don't even know. The audience, the screenwriter themselves saying, like, yeah, but it's fate. We got to have a, like a third act in this movie, man. And it's like, uh, okay, Jim Caviezel, didn't you just confess to the crime? Like there's no more work we need to do here. Yeah. And there's also the weird thing too, of like, as you were saying, the only thing Denzel's doing is responding to people in the first, you know, two thirds of this film. So then they delete everyone else in the cast except for him and Paula Patton, who's certainly not going to carry this movie. Nope. And the thing kind of just devolves into this mess. Like, I just don't understand, like, why the movie needed to save Paula Patton. Right. I think that's, like, the big flaw of the movie. I'll get bigger with it. I think the big flaw of the movie is that it is unable to explain its crazy wormhole traveling device to the extent that it then enters into the rhetorical fray spirituality. This like becomes right. a god movie at a certain point um, and in a crucial way at the very end. And I think that that is also tied to the sort of unearned, as you put it, uh, Katrina commentary that you were talking about. I right. think in the way that Tony Scott like shoots the Navy people at the beginning, there's this sense that like everyone involved is so innocent. And so then the movie gets into both technobabble and like sort of religious wish fulfillment about protecting the innocent. And that's a bad combo. Yeah. It's not, well, that's the thing. Like there's no bad guy. There's only just like a lot of 
good guys with not very interesting motivations. And then when you finally figure out like who this criminal mastermind is, it really is just like, it's the plot of the movie itself that has created this, like, you know, like he would have never fallen for Paula Patton had this service not existed. And it sounds like they would have caught the criminal anyway, because he wanted to be caught because he was proud of it. Yeah. So like, that's the the villain of the film is just the film itself and not necessarily anyone on screen. So I just think it's hard to like be interested in watching that this sort of like Snow White story, which is what it is. It's woman behind glass that they have to go save. That's interesting. Uh, that's a good point. I will say because we've just like unloaded on this movie. It has some moments. For instance, when. They're when they are trying to see where Jim Caviezel is going after they're committing of the crime, and they need to extend their satellite range by using a mobile. I'm sorry, are you bringing up the Humvee chase right now? The Humvee chase is amazing. The Humvee chase is so. I yes, it's great filmmaking, and it's like a great premise to film. But it like this like it doesn't make any sense though. The, I'm saying that the fact that you are watching Denzel with a lens on one eye that shows him where Jim Caviezel was four days ago while weaving through traffic in the present day, while he's not <laughs> weaving through traffic, he's hitting everyone in sight. But like that's a pretty, a pretty exciting bold scene, is it not? Oh, it's great. Um. Oh, and I liked putting together... The, the interesting thing about the movie, too, is because there's this time travel element, you're, like, putting the pieces together, realizing that... Eventually realizing that he must have gone back in time. Yes, for sure because, he like, did. Because, <laughs> like, people start asking him questions that don't really make sense. And so, as, as hard as I am on this movie, I am going to give it a bad good. Same. Same. Um, but this I, movie just could have been so much better. And that's what like really upsets me about it. For sure. And I think if you are, for instance, like 17-year-old Chance, like it really appealed to you in its just like breathless explaining of these things before like the Humvee chase <laughs> where he's yeah. looking four days into the past. But if you watch it now, it's it's frustrating. Also, this movie... I should have said this way earlier. Tony Scott is hardcore ripping off the Bourne movies in this movie. The the visual aesthetic of like the camera being um, like a surveillance camera that like refocuses on an image, um, and yeah. the, and like the sound like the soundtrack is like note for note in the main theme. Like he's Doug Liman and Greengrass should sue because, like, he's right. hardcore ripping off those movies. Well, the visual style is somewhere between the Bourne movies and Minority Report. Mm. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. You're like, it's using. Well, that's the weird thing about Tony Scott is then he started making movies that were just them, like, scrubbing the images from the past and, like, got rid of the whole, you know, middleman there of, you know, someone needing to present you a movie that looked like a movie. And then you get movies like Domino. So, are you willing to come with me and say that none of these, I mean, maybe other ones do, but none of these movies pulled off the science of time travel. I think this is a really tough genre because like, as, as we sort of alluded to, you need to like, you need to explain yourself at length, but then like, you're not going to find an airtight way to explain the science of time travel. So then you kind of need to like, at a certain point you need to pull off a sleight of hand where you brush past it. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? And my, I think the only movie that pulled it off for me was Looper yeah. because it, the movie became not even a movie about time travel, but a movie about making choices in one's life. Right. I would agree. This has been such a pleasure. Let's not wait until the next, uh, well, we can wait until the next one if you want.
Let's not. Well, I was gonna say let's not wait until 2030 or 2044 to record another one. We could do another batch of time travel movies. I'm sure. Time, yeah. time machine. Or we can we can go back in time and just do this one again. That'd be fun. I I would certainly change some of my remarks. I'm sure. Maybe. All right, pal. Uh, well, thank you again to Justin Taylor for for doing this and uh, for watching that very silly movie and then coming up with a lot of really insightful things to say about it. Uh, we yeah, I mean, we he said it. things that were way more insightful than anything we could come up with. So, or that the writers of that movie could come up with. So, absolutely. Noah, my friend, uh, nice to talk to you, audience. You can always follow us on Twitter at BeRealGuys. Email us at BeRealGuys at gmail.com. Listen wherever fine to adequate podcasts are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play. And we will be in your ears again soon, hopefully. Yeah, man. All right. I'm building a birdhouse. And you can't kill the demon without kicking off its frozen liquid nitrogen head first. See you later. Does anybody really-